In the second episode of our American History series, Gary Gerstel is going to tell us the story of the man who tried to stop pornography in America at the end of the 19th century and how he used the post office to do it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, it's thought that counts. Give everyone you know a subscription to the LRB for just 19.99, and they'll throw in a free 2020 calendar featuring some of the best of their fantastic cover art. Find this special festive offer at lrb.me forward slash Christmas. Gary, maybe we should start with the figure who's at the heart of this story, Anthony Comstock. It's an American story because he came from relative obscurity to national prominence. Who was he? Anthony Comstock was born into a Protestant family in New Canaan, Connecticut, one of seven children. Nondescript childhood, except that he had personal tragedy. His mother died when he was 10, and his father soon abandoned him and his six siblings, so they had to do a lot of scrambling and raising of themselves. He grew up in a devout Congregationalist home that was a derivative of Calvinism, and they redoubled on that, and his source of comfort became hard religion, hard confidence in the inerrancy of the Bible, and he became preoccupied with the crisis of morals that he thought was engulfing America. And when he grew up, he made his way to New York, I think first by happenstance, but then discovered there the center of the publishing industry and the center of an underground publishing industry uh, full of erotic, what he considered obscene, depravity. And this was a man who was very concerned about every sexual act out of the procreative act as being immoral and unacceptable. And he flagellated himself metaphorically for his own masturbation when he was a soldier in the Civil War. And this was the man who decided to take on the challenge of purifying America and making sex for procreation only. It was quite a large task he took on. And he rose to considerable power and influence, rising from a dry goods clerk to becoming the inspector for the U.S. Postal Service, empowering him to inspect anything passing through the post office that he deemed to be obscene. He was also connected to a very powerful group of elite citizens in New York called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. They got a law passed through the New York State Legislature empowering him to do all sorts of things within the boundaries of New York State, including calling in the police to arrest anyone who he suspected of obscene acts. We're in the 1870s when this is happening, the early, mid-1870s. So what counts as obscene here is pretty broadly drawn. So some of it is, I think we would still call it pornography. Quite a lot of it was actually educational material. I mean, he, he tried to suppress stuff that described the procreative act. I mean, never mind, try to give people pleasure from it. But then it also cuts across the politics of feminism and free love. I mean, some of these were political tracts as well. It was the whole gamut. Yes, he persuaded Congress in 1873 to pass what came to be known as the Comstock Act, which defined obscenity and in the broadest possible terms as anything encouraging lust. And this covered things we would conventionally describe as obscene or pornography, but it also covered all sorts of documents, newspapers, books that discussed free love, that discussed sexuality in freer terms, 
And it also sought to eliminate all knowledge passing through the post office regarding sex, and that include access to knowledge about abortion and access to knowledge about birth control. So these, of course, abortion and birth control were sins in his eyes because they encouraged sexuality outside of the procreative act. And so it was about as broad a statute against obscenity and lust as one could design. And this was passed in 1873. One of the really significant things about this, and you've written about it in your own work, is that in the history of the United States to this point and beyond, which we'll come on to, the suppression of vice was the business of the states, the individual states. And many of them were pretty good at it, or at least pretty active in that realm. I mean, there was quite a lot of moral censorship and also interference in people's lives, but not at the federal level. This is not part of the remit of the federal government. And this statute changes that. So just tell us a bit about that shift. I mean, what is so significant about this relative to the power of the federal government more broadly? Well, the states in the United States uh, had a doctrine called the police power that uh, empowered them to investigate and regulate just about any activity that citizens of their state were engaged in. And that did include sex. And that did include sex. And it was an incredibly broad statute. It's actually descended from the public police power of the British sovereign. Somehow it jumps the American Revolution and gets encoded into law and jurisprudence, empowering states to have an extraordinarily broad remit and actually exempts them from the Bill of Rights, uh, the first 10 amendments of the Constitution, guaranteeing freedom of speech, assembly, expression, and presumably sexuality as well. This is a little-known part of American history because usually America is thought of as being in revolt against public power, state power, and yet the states were empowered uh, with an extraordinary remit of this sort. And it's remarkable in a way that you could have the Bill of Rights and exempt the states, given that everyone in the United States of America lives in a state. I mean, it's not like by exempting the states, you're just carving out a small area. That's life, right? That is life, especially through the 19th and the early part of the 20th century. And when I was doing my work recovering the history of the use and abuse of power uh, by governments in America, I was stunned to discover that the states were exempted from the Bill of Rights from the moment of the 1790s when the Bill of Rights were first put into place until, for all intents and purposes, the 1960s. So for the first 170 years of American history, the states were not obligated by the Bill of Rights. It is an extraordinary exemption, all the more so because the Bill of Rights is considered to be perhaps America's greatest liberal contribution to individual rights and human rights of all its work on law and jurisprudence and establishing a new republic. And because the states are very different, presumably some of them, this exemption mattered less than in others, but some of them were really active in invading people's what we would now call privacy. And they they had the right to do so. And the police power was explicit about the responsibility of state governments to enforce proper moral life among their citizenry. Some states pursued quite extraordinary interventions into the life of individual citizens. One of the arguments for the 19th century is that because they could not exert any influence beyond their borders, Americans always had the opportunity to get up and leave and 
moved to a different state, and there were always states that were more liberal, and there were always states that were more repressive. And so some people think that the extraordinary geographical mobility of Americans was related to the power of these police power regimes. But for many citizens, many poor people, there was no escape, whether it was blacks in the South or poor people in the North. And many people were bound by the regimes of the states in which they lived. And this, for many, many Americans, was life. And their encounter with government was largely with their state governments. So what Comstock does is he takes this to the federal level, and the instrument that he uses is the Postal Service. So it's one of the ironies of this story that the Postal Service, which for most people is a practical and relatively non-ideological body, becomes the vehicle of anti-vice politics at the federal level. So what powers did it have that made that possible? Why does it stand out in the powers of the federal government? Uh, Yes, it's a fascinating story. The federal government could only exercise powers explicitly given to it in the Constitution. And the post office is actually mentioned in the Constitution that the federal government has the right and authority and obligation to regulate the mails. This was about, in the framers' minds, upholding Republican citizenship. This was not about a personal correspondence between you and me or sending a letter to my wife on the frontier. This was to make sure that Citizens of the United States in this very large land uh, with rudimentary forms of transportation and communication, this was ensuring that news would travel because you could not have an effective citizenry unless all the citizens were adequately informed about the affairs of their day. So they had to receive their newspapers or pamphlets, all kinds of discussions, all kinds of decrees, all kinds of things being elaborated in Washington. These had to be discussed throughout the country. This is why the post office is mentioned in the Constitution. It is indispensable to Republican citizenship. And regulate there, therefore, doesn't mean censor or control. It means keeping the the movement going. I mean, maintaining the post office, maintaining the freedom of ideas. Yes. And the United States developed a postal network that was the greatest and the densest of any countries of the Western world of the 19th century, this was working. But embedded in the Constitution is this very broad regulatory power. And so when Comstock wants to have a national power to regulate morals, there is no general power to regulate morals in the Constitution. It cannot be exercised by the federal government. So he and others begin to think, well, how can we gain this power that the Constitution doesn't really give us to regulate this on a national level? And their eyes turn toward the post office because the post office is clearly a federal function. It's a large and efficacious bureaucracy. Some Americans living today might be surprised to hear this, that in the 19th century, this was one of the largest and most effective and most admired institutions of the federal government. And Comstock says the Constitution empowers the federal government to regulate the mails, which means we have the right to eliminate all obscene materials from the mail. From crossing state Borders? From, yes. That's, that's the focus of it, right? Yes, yes, because, yes, you and this is a national campaign. Any mail traveling within states, between states, is being carried by the U.S. Postal Service. There are no state-limited postal services. This is all being done by this federal agency. And Comstock says, here is our national censorship mechanism. And he turns his attention toward scrutinizing all publishing houses, all producers of erotic material, not just 
books and literature and art, but devices. Balkanized rubber had been invented in the 1840s, which makes the possible the production of all kinds of sex toys that had not been created before uh, in that form. And these are also going through the mails. And whatever is going through the mails, and he can demonstrate as such, he has the right to seize and to destroy. It's not a perfect mechanism because if I'm operating an erotic publishing house in lower Manhattan and I hand deliver something to customers living down the street, I might be vulnerable to the New York state law, but if I can get it out of the state of New York to neighboring New Jersey, Comstock can't prosecute me on that basis because I'm not delivering it through the mail. But as you might imagine, in the 19th century, publishing houses depended on the mails for transporting their goods throughout the country. And so Comstock's intervention in this way was um, very powerful and very effective. The hand-delivered sex toy industry never really took off in the 19th century, I think. He did it, right? It wasn't just that he asked for the right to do it. He was incredibly active then in raiding publishing houses, spying on what went through the mail, seizing material, gathering these sex toys, putting them in a room in Congress, showing them to congressmen, this is what I've gathered. I mean, this wasn't just a campaign in principle, it was a campaign in practice. Yes, he was not interested just in rhetorical success and influence. He wanted to rid American society of all immoral knowledge about sex and all trade in sexual contraband. And given his what he considered to be sexual contraband and illicit knowledge about sex, it really included everything to do with sex. And he set out to eliminated all from American society. And he knew no limits to his purview, including he wanted to censor plays from Europe, uh, Shakespeare and other things that included what he thought were transgressive moments. He wanted to exclude some of the art and paintings by European masters from circulating in America. So he had his hand into everything. He kept extraordinarily meticulous records. One one reason why we know so much about him is that he recorded every raid that he engaged in. He recorded every charge that he brought against an individual, uh, record the success or failure of their trials in court. So we have some figures on the volumes of material and the poundage of material that he confiscated. And we're talking, you know, in terms of pounds and volumes, and ten, tens of thousands, pounds, hundreds of thousands. I mean, this was a fearsome practice, and those who were engaged in this industry and this trade feared Comstock, and he had the ability to ruin enterprises and ruin lives. Because he didn't just seize the material and destroy it. People were jailed. And and seriously punitive sentences as well. Yes. He brought a tremendous number of court cases. He had the power to to call in the police. He had the power to instigate a trial. He could not conduct the trial himself. This would be put in the hands of judges and sometimes of juries. I think in the first 10 or 20 years of his actions, his conviction rate was as high as 70%. It went down in the early 20th century when the rebellion against this man and his operation was established. It went down to in the 40%. Not a lot of people spent a huge amount of time in jail, but 30 days would be enough to ruin a reputation. And just the threat of Comstock being on your heels could throw you into a kind of 
disgrace. So this this was a powerful intervention into the culture and into the politics of sexuality in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. He was empowered to do this by Congress, so we're now in the Ulysses Grant regime, the one that follows on from the one we talked about last time with Sarah and the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. What was in it for the politicians, for the Republicans in particular? Why did they feel that they wanted to get behind this crusade, given it was, among other things, empowering a branch of the federal government, which may be a good thing in some respects for them, but it was deeply moralistic? Yes, and the Republicans were deeply moralistic. That's part of what they prided themselves on, on creating a a morally pure republic. They were also supporters of a large state, a large centralized state. A large centralized state had won the Union and the Republican Party, the Civil War, and they had come to appreciate its its benefits. They wanted to grow this state. They wanted to make it into a more powerful and effective institution. Yet, in order to do that, they faced constitutional problems because they could not simply write morals legislation, pass it in Congress, and have it accepted by the courts. The courts would have ruled these as unconstitutional. So they were looking for inventive ways to increase the size and power of the federal government, and Comstock gave them an an opportunity to do this by finding uh, the post office, something that congressmen would have not thought to look at, and showing them the utility of what many of them might have considered minor organizations, minor institutions of the federal government, suddenly there was a whole new scheme of improvisation, innovation, to make this a much more larger and consequential institution in American life. Related to that was a clamor from below for greater regulation of social relations in America. The Civil War had convulsed the country. It had undercut the ability of individual communities to police their members because millions of Americans were traveling. They were in armies. They were in different parts of the country. Millions of Americans literally had been released from communal and familial supervision by the war. And after the war came westward expansion, many of those who were released from these communal supervisions did not want to go back to these uh, situations. And also, this was the era of emancipation of freeing the slaves, and suddenly slaves, former slaves could marry uh, legally, which they could not do before. They could have relations legally with whites, which they could not do before. It was a moment of hope, emancipation, new sorts of personal relationships. It was a moment of new and renewed enthusiasm, vigor for feminism, women's rights, uh, women's sexuality, stepping out of a Victorian frame of mind. Uh, Emancipation of the 1860s raised all these hopes and set many Americans on projects of personal emancipation, sexual experimentation, rights for women, all kinds of relationships which have been accepted as normal for much of the 19th century 
were now not regarded as necessarily normal, and many regarded emancipation as an invitation to explore self, new relationships, and the like. The Republicans had authored this emancipation, but it also made them nervous. They were imagining emancipating the slaves. They were not necessarily imagining emancipating women or giving individuals license to explore new kinds of sexual relationships. This was not part of what they thought they were doing, and yet you unleash a word like emancipation into the political sphere, and it's got to have unpredictable consequences. So the Republicans are nervous about this, and they are increasingly hearing a clamor from below that morals have become too loose, uh, that the republic is in danger for reasons of immorality, and something must be done to put the ship of state back on its course. Emancipation produces a backlash, and then, as is often the story with moralized politics, the moralization produces eventually a backlash. So Comstockery, it lasts for a couple of decades or more, and initially it's very successful. But over time, there is pushback. Yes, uh, I would say Comstock's heyday is the great campaign to re-implant morality on the American people, 1870s to 1890s, after the Civil War. And then the resistance to Comstock begins to mount. This is a country that is urbanizing, uh, big cities, filling up with immigrants, different walks of life. Cosmopolitan takes off in the cities. People have access to European experiences and traditions. They have access to a much greater sense of what the varieties of human behavior are and what, what is acceptable in different sorts of societies. And in these urban areas in particular, a new kind of modern living takes off, first among the middle classes and then in some ways going down to the the working classes. And this includes greater rights for individuals, greater rights for women, free thinkers, which was the euphemism for atheists, want to live their own lives in, in ways not directed by the Bible and by a literal reading of it. These forces take off, and they begin to challenge Comstock head-on in courts, in public realms, in debates. And also, uh, as Comstock is faced with this resistance, he is driven to, to greater length. America develops a new group of painters in the early 20th century that are deeply in touch with European currents. This is the moment of modernism, and Modernism is having a big impact on American cities. In fact, American cities are seen as an expression of modernism, and there are all kinds of experimentation and new art forms. And these artists in touch with European currents, European supporters, become much more mobilized, as does women's groups, feminism, and they take on Comstock in a frontal and very effective way, so that by 1905, 1910, if you talk about someone getting Comstocked, it is a term of ridicule. He's lost a lot of his authority. But he plows on, and as late as 1915, which is the year in which he dies, he is trying to take Margaret Sanger, the creator of the birth control movement in the United States, to court. She has escaped England. He he can't get her, so he puts her husband on trial for assisting her in the United States and actually jails him for 30 days. So he's there at the end, till the end, uh, uh, trying to enforce his vision of moral purity on America. But By this time, he is regarded as retrograde and part of an America that deserves to be put into the past as America embraces its modernist future. 
part of what's so fascinating about this story is it's the intersection between two kinds of conflicts. So you've got the conflict between the moralizers and the free thinkers, and then presumably a lot of people who are somewhere in between. And then you've got the conflict between the federal government and the state governments. And what happens in this story is that the moralizers see the power of the federal government as a means to control what otherwise had been left to the states. So if we take the story forward to now, living in a very different kind of information age, uh, there is a lot more pornography than there was in the 1870s. And the internet is a very different kind of means for sharing information. But the people who believe in it, as the founders did with the post office, believe that the internet is vital for people to have access to ideas and access to knowledge. What comes with that is the freedom for people to use it to spread both disinformation and also what some people would consider harmful or obscene material. What there isn't is a post office that can regulate it, unless I've missed it. If you look at the story now, do you see the parallels or is it a completely different political and informational environment? I think one can see both continuities and and differences. I think we can think of the 1960s as a period of emancipation, civil rights, feminism, gay rights, sexual liberation, similar to the 1860s and 1870s, followed by a period of, oh my God, the country's lost its way. We must re-implant morality on the American people. And that's a big part of the story of America since, since the 1960s. There is no single figure like Comstock, but there is Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority and, and other very powerful groups that have sought desperately to reimplant what they consider morality on the American people and on the American public. Uh, they have had no mechanism like the post office. The post office is still with us. It does not have the significance it did then. And what's interesting about the internet, it's, it's considered vital. And I think at its moment of invention, it was thought it was going to reinvigorate the American Republic by putting information in the hands of all sorts of people uh, in a way that had not been available before. And information is thought to be the lifeblood of republicanism and democratic deliberation. It hasn't quite worked out that way, either in terms of obscenity or in terms of rational political deliberation. What's interesting and different about this moment is that there is no agency that is the equivalent of the post office to take on a job of this sort of regulation. The central government, in theory, has the capacity to do it, uh, having stripped the states of much of their power across the 20th century and finding ways to increase the authority of the central government. But one of the ways in which the central government stripped the states of its power was to subject them all to the Bill of Rights. And this has had the effect of elevating the Bill of Rights in what I like to call the Bill of Rights absolutism, no interference with free speech, no interference with freedom of assembly, no interference with what can be said or transmitted over the internet, no interference with what rich people can give to politicians to help with their campaigns because it's seen to be a form of free speech. And in this period of Bill of Rights absolutism, establishing an institution with the regulatory power, both in politics and morals, to control some of the excesses of the internet has proved to be extraordinarily difficult to do. And in that way, it's, I think, different from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The other difference is that in the 1870s, the Comstock story for Republicans, enhancing the power of the federal government was a good thing. It was the game that they were in to take that power away from the states 
And if the post office was the means, it was the means. Now, Republicans, broadly speaking, although of course it varies, would like to see the states empowered in various ways, those powers that were taken away in the 1960s, the remoralizing of American life, which in the 1870s quite clearly did need at this level to pass through the federal government. Now, for the people who want to do it, the federal government is an object of deep suspicion. But there is no way of going back to the states in this space either. I mean, the means are more limited, well, ideologically. It's an interesting question you raise because in one respect, uh, the Republicans have been extraordinarily successful in this regard, and that is in regard to uh, abortion, where Republicans have been opposed for more than 40 years now to Roe versus Wade, which is the ruling in the early 70s, giving women a right to an abortion, and they have sought to overturn that judicial decision for more than 40 years without success. They still may do that, but what they have done in its place is to take their struggle to the states and to get states to make access to abortion clinics far more difficult, to work around the edges of Roe versus Wade, to make an adjustment here, to make an adjustment there. The net result of that is that in many places, in many states in America, it is increasingly hard for women to get an abortion. And so the Republicans, in terms of abortion, have actually been quite successful in returning to the states and recognizing that the central government is no longer a reliable instrument for their purposes. The question is is whether what they have done with regard to abortion can be a model for taking on obscenity and pornography. And in this case, of course, the obscenity and pornography travels by these international media, which would be much harder for individual states to control. Not impossible, theoretically, but New York or Louisiana is not China. And it can't shut down access uh, within its borders to that kind of information. That kind of flow of information remains solidly within the province of central government power. And for that to be taken on effectively, that solution, I think, would have to be done um, at the level of the central government. And in that respect, I think the Republicans or others who are interested in this have not found a way to do this. Next week, Gary is going to take us through the second part of this story, which is about the power of the big corporations in America and the robber barons, from Rockefeller to Zuckerberg. It's the story of monopoly and muckraking in America. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.